Uh, we're entering in a great season of our church where this fall we'll be launching small groups again. And this is an amazing time for those of us that call this church home to make a deep investment. And the primary way I'm asking you to consider that this morning is to think about being a small group host or leader. A small group host or leader gathers a group of people together and we have some important conversations. We talk about life in honest ways. We meet together long enough, like frequently enough, to get past not knowing each other's names so you get known a little bit. And then we pray about what's important in our lives. It's not all that complicated, but when we talk about small groups, you may have a standard in your head that's really unrealistic or feel like maybe some of the characters there you don't qualify. But the truth is, almost anybody, almost anybody can use by God to either host or lead a small group. And what we're asking you to do pragmatically here is for you to take your next step. And it could be that perhaps your next step is to lead a group. And here's the cool thing about that. When you take that step, you actually help other people take that step. And the other thing that we want you to do when you lead or host a small group is we want you to help other people connect to their church family. Like I can't know everybody here, but there are people here who can know you and give you a chance to build friendships that'll make a difference in your spiritual development. And the other thing that is really important about small groups is it reiterates, it emphasizes the reality that you and I can't do life alone. I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. It's not the way God designed it. And in a small group, we get the opportunity to build relationships that matter. But it all begins with a leader saying, I'm willing to host or lead a small group. And at the end of the message today, I'm going to give you a chance to respond to that invitation that perhaps you would be interested in leading a small group. And if you'll check the box when we get there, what will happen is, is the persons who are leading that initiative for us this fall will contact you, sit down with you, discover what's on your heart, talk about what we have to help you so that you're not out there by yourself and to help you launch real strong in that. All right. So I'm really excited about this upcoming season. It's going to be great. But today we're at week six of our fresh message series. So if you have your Bible and would like to join with me, we're going to park in, a, in the Old Testament book called First Kings, First Kings, about chapter 19. We'll be there. Now, we're going to be in several other places to begin with, and you can follow along writing your message notes right here, all right, writing your message notes right there. So you want to open that up. I want to talk to you today about the Old Testament character Elisha. Elisha. Now, a few weeks ago, I talked to you about Elijah, and those folks often get confused with one another, right? So Elijah is the previous one we did him earlier. And Elisha is actually the mentee of Elisha. Or I got that completely wrong. Elisha is the mentee of Elijah, who is his mentor, all right? And so we're going to talk about the younger guy, the guy that comes second today. And I want us to discover something that for me was a, a spiritual truth that I didn't know that God was teaching me. Really one point, we're going to look at it from several different angles, but I didn't realize God was teaching me this truth, and I didn't particularly enjoy the lesson that God was teaching me. And it could be, as we roll through today, you'll discover a similar kind of reality. And many of you, I bet, are right in the middle of this thing that God often teaches his followers as we look at the story of Elisha. Now, we're going to park in 1 Kings chapter 19, but we're actually going to begin with a verse in our New Testament that I don't have on your message notes, because I think it sets a framework for us. But it'll be up here on the screen. Now, if you want to get there to, in your Bible, you can. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Or you can just write up here on the side screen. I'd like to begin right here, okay? So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews writes these words. He says, therefore, and we have to pause there, because I'm picking up in the middle of a thought. 
Hebrews chapter 12 begins with the sentence, or with the word therefore at the front end of the sentence, because it's referring to what he has talked about in what we call chapter 11. All right, so 12 comes after 11, that makes sense. And in chapter 11, it's what we call the roll call of faith. It's all these heroes of our Bible and all the amazing things that they did and how they serve for us as an example to follow. And we can learn things from their life. That's what we're going to do with Elisha today. He's a hero of our faith, and we're going to learn some things from him. But I want you to look at the way the writer of Hebrews says we can learn from them. We can learn in chapter 11 from their example, but we can think about it differently in chapter 12, verse 1. So therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all those people he was talking about in chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders And the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I love the way the Bible is blatantly honest. I mean, right here, we're told that the journey of faith that God puts us on sometimes just isn't easy. I mean, we get entangled up and it's pretty easy for that to happen. We get distracted. We we forget where we're going. We get tripped up. But when you think about all these heroes of the faith, and you realize they serve as witnesses to our lives, let their life inspire us and learn from what they went through. And so as I'm talking with you about Elisha today, the image that I have in my mind is the image of a race. That's the image that's kind of put here, the image of a journey, run with perseverance. And just before the race is about to begin, Elisha wants to pull us aside and talk to us about our own experiences, about his experiences. And he's going to give us, like a coach might give us, great encouragement and incredible insight. He's going to say to us, look, I know it's hard sometimes, but I got some stuff for you. You can learn here. And I'm going to help you if you'll let me. All right? Because sometimes when we choose to follow God, when we respond to the call that he's put on us, Sometimes our expectations don't match our reality. Like, I don't know what you thought life with God was going to be like when you first stepped out. I don't know what situation you were in when you first responded. But there's a pretty common experience to most followers of Jesus. And that is at some point you go, I didn't know that following Jesus would include that. I didn't know that walking with Jesus would include this. So sometimes what we thought was going to happen and where we are doesn't fully align. Right? That's the first thing I want you to have in your mind. Here's the second thing I want you to have in your mind. Everything God calls you to is important to God, even if other people don't see its value. Now, this is where Elisha really has a lot to say to us. Sometimes what's important to you and important to others the way you value certain things in your life and certain experiences, certain seasons of your life, you put a certain value on them, but God sometimes puts a very different value on them. So what kinds of things are important to God? This is exactly what Elisha is gonna be able to teach us, all right? So let's jump right in and deal with the idea that with God, nothing is small. So number one there in your message notes, here's the first thing I think that Elisha would teach us I'll give you the principle and then we'll look at it in his life, all right? Number one, do your, do your best behind the scenes and God will see it. Do your best behind the scenes and God will see it. Elisha's 
story is one of a long period of waiting. It's one that starts off with incredible promise, and it looks like it's going to be uphill in a good way, up and to the right, as they say, the whole time. Getting better, moving forward, ever-increasing productivity, great life. That's the promise that his life starts with when he's introduced to us in 1 Kings chapter 19, but that is not at all the way it goes. Let's pick up the story. 1 Kings 19, 19, right there in your message notes. So Elijah, that is the mentor, went from there and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And here's what Elisha was doing. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. We have to pause there. Very few people would have had 12 yoke of oxen. Elisha probably has some means. He's probably fairly wealthy. He's got 12 different teams out there and he's kind of leading it. So he's playing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair, all right? So Elijah, the mentor, went up to him and threw his cloak around him. And Elisha left his oxen and ran after Elijah. So here's the scene. You got this guy who's doing fairly well in life. His situation's relatively comfortable. He's got 12 yoke of oxen. And he's a pretty good guy, evidently, because he's not a leader from up above telling everybody else what to do. He's down there in the trenches with them, and they're making headway in the field. They're doing great work. And then here comes Elijah. Now, everybody knows who Elijah is. He's the guy who, at this point in his life, has done some 12 major miracles. We read about and studied one of them just a couple weeks ago. He's come head-to-head with King Ahab and survived it. He called down fire from heaven and God did remarkable things. He's able to bring victory to Israel's armies as they have their skirmishes around around the region. Everybody knows who this celebrity is. And Elijah comes walking up to the field to Elisha. And everybody stops. And because prophets can be a little weird, there isn't a lot of talking or whatever. But Elijah just takes off his cloak, which is kind of like his outer garment. And he puts it on the shoulders of Elisha. A symbolic act that you're going to wear the mantle I wear. You're going to carry what I've carried. You're going to continue what I have started. This is a big deal. It's such a big deal that in a moment, in a moment, Elisha stops what he's doing and he begins to follow Elijah. Because this is a great start. I mean, from the field to a position of being the assistant in the, in the shadow, the one who's going to follow after Elijah, the most famous guy in the entire country. This promises so much awesomeness. There's going to be so much good here. But what we're going to discover in Elijah's life is, is that God often takes us on a journey that doesn't match our expectations. And that what's important to God sometimes isn't important to the people around us. And often it's not even important to us in the same way. Elisha is about to go on a journey that begins with such promise, but it's going to slow down real quick, or at least it's going to appear to. And he's going to go through a season, even though he begins with such incredibleness, he's going to go through a season, about 10 years, of not walking in the incredible shadow of Elijah and getting prominence from Elijah. He's going to walk in the shadow of Elijah, but it's not going to be a prominent position. He's going to literally be Elijah's servant. 
He's literally going to be in the shadow in the negative way. He's going to literally be behind the scenes in everything he does. And it's going to last about a decade of his life. He's going to do a lot of small things. I mean, long before, the Bible's going to tell us a single important thing that Elisha does. It tells us something about the journey that Elisha is going to be on. He's going to be on a journey of obscurity. He's going to be on a journey of dealing with small things. He's going to literally be operating in the shadow of other people. And this is the path that God has destined for him. Not the kind of path that most people would choose. And I bet you it wasn't in Elisha's mind when it started. I bet you if you could say to Elisha as he pulls you aside to encourage you to run your race. Hey, what was in your mind when you started? I bet he would have said something like this. I thought we were ready to run together. I assumed Elijah was ready to move on right away, and I quickly move into that position. I thought when I stepped up and let him put that cloak on me and began to follow him and walked away from all the stuff that my family had and that comfort there and stepped into that role he called him to, I thought it was going to go very great for me. I didn't realize God was going to take me to a different place. That happens. That happens to people who begin to follow Jesus. The journey that they have in mind sometimes doesn't fully align with the path that God puts them on. And most of us, at one point or another, have to go through the same set of lessons that Elisha is going to go through in our time together today. A time when we long for greatness and visibility and incredible productivity, when instead what we're walking, the path that God has us moving towards, is obscurity, and servanthood, dealing with small things. I've learned this lesson multiple times. I'm hoping that God believes I've learned it enough so I don't have to go through it much more. It started with me when I was a junior in, in college. And in between my junior year and my senior year, I had made a definitive declaration. I was prepared to follow God with my life. And I'd do ministry. I went public with the fact that I was going to do ministry with my life. I changed my major, kind of you know, made all the, the grandmas in the little church that I grew up in happy because they had been telling me for years, God's going to use you in the church. God's going to use you in the church. And I'm like, I'm going to make a lot of money somewhere else. And they're like, God's going to use you in the church. And I'm like, I got women I want. And they're like, God's going to use you in the church. And I'm like, I want a position of prominence. And they're like, God's going to use you in the church. And finally, I was like, God's going to use me in the church. So they knew what they were talking about. And in my mind, when I was ready to step out of that, I, I don't know what I thought, but I certainly thought that God would be very proud of me. And that because of my great obedience and sacrifice, God would elevate me quickly. And so between my junior and senior year of college, um, I volunteered and to, to go to an inner city church in Chicago and serve there. And I thought, well, by the end of this time, I'll have kind of proven myself and, and it'll be time to like really begin. And I'll know for sure if this ministry thing is what I want to do. And about three weeks in... Um, at this church serving, um, I was given the job, very high and lofty job of janitor. Now, they didn't call it janitor. They call it intern. But, <laughs> but basically, it was janitor. And I remember very, very clearly, one, one, one Tuesday morning, um, in this very old building in downtown, uh, in, in the, not quite downtown, but just to the west of downtown Chicago, um, I was mopping and cleaning the men's restroom. And I promise you, that place had not been cleaned for 15 years, guaranteed. And I'm in there mopping the floor and 
I'm a little frustrated and the, the newness has already worn off and I'm mopping, mopping, mopping and I'm not all that happy about it. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I, what I had in mind was not at all where I was. And just feeling like, God, I, not only have I said yes to ministry, but with my own money, I've moved up here to serve people and I did not have in mind mopping bathrooms. And it wasn't enough to just mop the bathroom. I mean, I had to get out the little scrub brush and try to, try to clean things. And it was just, it was horrible. I'm about two-thirds of the way through the job. One of the, the, the associate pastors of this kind of ministry walked, walked into the restroom. And he's like, hey, I just want to check on you. And he gave me a phrase that has uh, stuck with me for a long time. He says, you know, I'm really, I'm really glad to see how attentive you are to this job. I'm really glad to see you're kind of taking it seriously. Because a lot of people just kind of come in and they wipe at it and, and move on. I'm really glad to see you. Because he, then he says, and I don't think he realized how much he kind of dropped the mic on me, like how profound this statement he was. He says, because if you're, if you're too good to clean a bathroom in ministry, you're, you're probably not going to be able to use by God for much of anything. And he's kind of turned to walk off. And I don't think he knew. I mean, I hope my attitude didn't show as clearly maybe as, as it did that I wasn't all that happy. But when he just said it, and it, he wasn't, didn't word it in a profound way. It wasn't like incredibly memorable. But for me, it was a timely moment. If you're too good to clean a bathroom, then God probably can't use you in other profound ways. That stuck in me. But God began to kind of use that over the course of that summer. And I began to look at the service there as something very different and begin to realize that what I thought God was going to do in my life and the path he was going to take me on wasn't fully aligned. And I began to get a value for the path that God had me on. Now, all through the Bible, this lesson is there. You can't read the Bible very long without coming face to face with reality that God is not as concerned with your popularity, your comfort, your effectiveness, and the way you measure success the way that we are as concerned about those things. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus talked about it when he was talking to his disciples and the crowds. And he says, your father, your heavenly father, who sees what is done in, here's the principle, secret will reward you. Your father, and then Jesus gives three examples of the kinds of secret things that really matter to God that doesn't seem to matter to most every other person. Certainly has not mattered to me. But when God sees you do these things, it matters a lot to him. Here's an example, the three Jesus gave. He said, when you pray in secret, like not like out in public, but when you pray in secret, your heavenly father sees what you do in obscurity, he notices it, he values it, and he rewards that thing. He says when you fast, that is when you say no to yourself, say no to your flesh, to your cravings, to the earthly life, and you give yourself a season to focus on spiritual things. Other people look at you and go, man, you're giving up, you know, bacon for, for what again? What are you giving up bacon for right now? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm fasting. The, Jesus told his disciples when you fast, your heavenly father sees that. And other people don't need to see it, but your heavenly father sees it and he'll reward it. And then Jesus gave an example about giving, praying, fasting, and giving. When you give in secret, other people aren't necessarily going to value it. It may not make immediate sense, but that secret thing that you do, God sees it and God rewards it openly. 
that elevates those kinds of things, this obscurity in your life done for God, the small things done for God. He sees it and he rewards it. It's a principle that Elisha was going to learn from the moment the cloak was put on his shoulders until over 10 years. And the Bible describes the kind of work that Elisha did for Elijah. Here's the phrase it uses. It's an idiomatic phrase in the Hebrew. It says, he poured water over Elijah's hands. That's an idiomatic way of saying he was his servant. He was his helper. He got his, got his cloak for him. He made the phone calls and appointments for him. He did the small things. He cleaned his shoes. He literally washed his hands before Elijah would sit down. That's the kind of way that this journey with Elisha began. And I think if he would pull us aside and say, let me tell you about this race you're running. You're going to go through a season where you're going to wonder probably if it's worth it. If the thing you committed to is being manifested in your life. If there's a if the gap between what you wanted and where you are, if it's worth it to continue. And I think Elisha would look at us all in the eyes and he'd say, let me, let me just tell you something. The small stuff that nobody else values, and maybe you don't even value it, God values it. He doesn't just value it. He saw you. He sees you do it. And he will reward it in ways that the people around you, perhaps even yourself, can't even understand. The small stuff... The behind-the-scene things, that stuff really matters. Let's make the same point again in number two. Do your best in smaller things, and God will give you bigger things to do. Do your best in smaller things, and God will give you bigger things to do. Look at what happened. Picking up again in verse 20. Elisha then left his oxen, and he ran after Elijah. And then he says, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. And then I'll come with you. And Elijah looks at him and says, no, nah, go back. What have I done to you? Like, I think Elijah's saying to him, I don't think you understand. We're not, we're not taking a lot of time. You're going to have to begin right now. Now look at what Elisha does. This is where you begin to get a little insight into his character. So Elisha left him and went back and he took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. And he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and he gave it to the people and they ate. What he was saying was, I'm done with that old life. I'm moving on. It's over. I'm done. I'm moving on. I had said, wait a minute. And Elisha's kind of like, you know, look, if I got to wait a long time, I'm going on without you. And so he went back and he said, I'm done. I'm not looking back anymore. I'm going to go ahead and give myself fully to the thing that Elijah is inviting me to be a part of. And then the Bible tells us that he set out to follow Elijah and he became his servant. That's the place where in the Hebrew it says he poured water over his hands. In the NIV it translates he became his servant. If you do your best in the smaller things, Elisha would tell all of us, then God will give you bigger things to do. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. There's a principle in the scripture that when God's about to elevate somebody and do something profound in your life, something big and astonishing, he often begins very, very small. I think sometimes we undervalue how important our faithfulness is to God. If you're, if you're a student of business literature these days, they call it grit. 
grit. There are books about grit. And this is not, you know, the Alabama grits. This is like grit stick with it all right? Not the good stuff that you can eat. It's the grit. It's the stick with itness. I think sometimes we undervalue our faithfulness to God. And sometimes when it comes to the smaller things in our eyes, we don't understand that God sees things differently than we do. God takes Elisha on this journey, and his life is there as an example for us. Like those people in Hebrews chapter 11, all those stories. And now those folks serve as witnesses to the way God works. I think, I think if you and I would understand a little bit more and embrace how God works in things just like we're talking about, our journey with the Lord would make more sense to us. It would, have, it would perhaps have more, a, more, a more sense of purpose. There'd be a greater sense of meaning. And then when we go through these seasons of obscurity and we're, we feel like we're stuck with small things, we'd understand it. I know Elisha would encourage us to understand and embrace it, that just the things that we see in the values we put on things, that's not necessarily the way God sees them. And that when we understand God more, when we understand his nature and the way that, we, that way that he works, even the small and obscure things take on special meaning. They have purpose. They satisfy more deeply than if you are unschooled in these matters of the way that God works. When I was in college, once again, I was enamored with a particular teacher who had... Um, come and, and began to lead the theology department at the, the school where I was attending. And I was captivated by this guy's intelligence, but also the fact that he wasn't just an ivory tower guy. He had just come out of serving in a very successful local church. And when he would talk about theology, he always had these kind of real life experiences to go along with it. And I began to take the classes that he offered. And if there was ever a, a seminar where he was a part of, I'd go and be a part of that. And one, one day in one of the classes I had with him, he threw out an opportunity and he said, Hey, all you guys that kind of want to do ministry, I'm going to have this special thing over here at this church in a few weeks, and I need some help, and would you like to come help? I was in a season of learning and growing, and I I enjoyed being around that guy as much as I could. And so on a particular uh, Friday for the training and then committed to the Saturday for the event to help this local church work through some stuff, I decided I'd show up. So I got there bright and early for the training event sat all the way through the training event. And then on Saturday morning when the event was about to begin, I decided I'd get there early to see if there was any help needed. You know, my dad was a very big stickler for being on time. And so I'd internalized that a bit. It wasn't so much a conscious decision, so much it was just what I did. I decided I'd be there early. So I got there early and I said, hey, what what can I do to help? And there there are a handful of people running around in a bit of a frenzy, you know, trying to get the last minute stuff together. And this wasn't so much a a high polished event. It was just an event to help a particular local church. And so I just jumped in, began to help. And just before the event was about to begin, this guy that had kind of captured my attention and ultimately would become a mentor for me, he said, hey, I need a a few of you, uh, you students out there to let me interview you over the lunch session. And while the pastors and the volunteers in this church are are having lunch, I'd like for us to just talk about what it is to have a teachable and open heart. Okay. All right, I'm I'm available. And so we went through the morning and we come to the lunch party. All right, get up here in this chair. And he had a microphone. And I'm like nervous as could be. I haven't been in front of people much. I'm really young and... So he began to talk about what, would it, what it is it to have not just the role and title of a student in a season in life, but what is it to have an open and teachable heart? And what do you think that means? And he kind of go around the circle and so he comes to me. He's like, well, what do you think that means? And 
don't remember all that I said, but I remember saying something like, you know, I guess it means not being so arrogant that you think you got it all together. You always have an openness and a willingness to learn and you go out and find resources that you need and you find people that are further along and you sit down with them. And I thought it was just an event. It seemed actually quite small to me. It seemed actually quite small to me. Two, about two weeks later, he calls me and he says, hey, remember that church we helped out? I'm actually going to go help that church on staff and I need a handful of people and I've got some money to help pay. And I was really impressed with that answer you gave. And if you were serious, I'll offer you a job. I'm no dummy. I was going to do it for free. Of course, I'll do it for money. Of course, I'll help. I mean, my dad didn't raise no dummies. And we began to work together. And it all began because of a rather small willingness to just help that led to an opportunity to talk about something important that led to that being on his mind as this other opportunity became a part of his life. And he offered me, I ended up working for that guy in one form or another for about five years. He helped pay for my seminary, gave me a place to live. Again, I'm no dummy. Those are good things. One day I was serving in Kentucky and he took a church in Florida and he called me and he said, I've got a job for you. I know, I know you're happy where you are, but I got a job for you and I'll pay for your school and give you a house to live in. And I was like, hold it, I think I hear the Lord talking. I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is like holy ground. And it all began just by a willingness. Now, I, I don't know all the things of God, but I know it's normal for God to start very small and to let faithfulness take root in small things. God cares too much about his kingdom work to trust very big, important things to untested and untried people. So he gives all of us a chance to walk in faithfulness. But if we don't value the small things, we'll get impatient. We'll give up. And Elisha would pull us aside as we're about to begin the race and say, I know as you're running, you're going to get tired. You might get discouraged. Your muscles might burn. Your lungs might, you know, have a hard time taking. But don't give up. And just keep going. Number three then. I think Elisha might say to us, do your best with consistency. And when you do that, God will grow your courage. God will grow your courage. Look at 2 Kings chapter 2. The story of Elijah and Elisha goes from 1 Kings into 2 Kings. So 2 Kings 2 on the screen in your sermon notes. Here's what the Bible says. When they had crossed... Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Now we've got to pause here. Elisha has lived his life. At this point, he's done 13 major miracles, like bona fide miracles, right? Like his fame is far and wide. And Elisha has been serving him the whole time, about a decade. And this is the point in the Bible where Elijah is about to be taken to heaven. He's one of the two people in the Bible who it appears as if never really died. Like they're just walking one day on earth and the next day they're walking in heaven. And this is the story where that's going to happen. And just before that happens, Elijah's about to go through a, a, a very serious time of transition, if we might say. And Elisha is with him because Elisha's always with him. He's always following him around. He's always helping out. And Elijah says to him, what do you want? Now look at, look at what he asks for. Elisha replied, verse 10, 
I'm sorry, tell me what I can do for you as I'm taking away. And then Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. In verse 10, you've asked a difficult thing. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. They come to this moment. They've had multiple conversations over their 10 years together as Elisha has poured water on the hands of Elijah. But now in this moment, Elijah's about to be gone. 10 years of faithful servant of, of obscurity, of dealing with the small things and dealing with them as if they were important, not as if they didn't matter. And that kind of consistency gives Elisha a certain boldness. How bold was this request? It was bold enough for Elijah to look back to him and say, whoa, that's a... That's a big thing you're asking for. That's a hard thing. Like, wow, that's a big request. He asked basically to have double impact, to have double impact than Elijah had. What's really cool about this is faithfulness in the small things over time, that kind of consistency, I have found it builds courage in people. It'll build courage in you. If no matter what season of life you're going through right now, spiritually, no matter where you are, your faithfulness, your willingness to be used by God in obscurity, it will give you a certain courage. It will build in you a confidence. Again, it's the biblical principle, not just found in this story. It's the story of David when he was a shepherd boy, caring for the sheep, and nobody was there to watch him. But one day, the Bible says that a mountain lion comes after the sheep. Nobody's there to watch him. And David's like, I guess it's just me, my job. And he goes after the mountain lion and he kills the mountain lion. Pretty big deal. Now, he may have talked about it at dinner at home with his brothers or something. I don't know, but nobody's there to see it. A few months later, he's tending the sheep again and there's a bear. Bear comes out of the hills and the Bible says that David gets the bear in obscurity. Nobody sees it. But when he stands before Goliath, and there's the Philistine army watching everything. And there's David's brothers and all of Israel's armies watching things. As he's talking to Elijah, or as he's talking to, to Goliath, here's what David says. I come at you, not in my own strength, but in the strength of the Lord who leads the armies of heaven. And this, that Lord, the same God that was with me when I killed the lion and the bear, that'll be the one that will give me strength to knock you to the ground. It was as if that stuff done in obscurity gave him a boldness and a confidence in the things of God. So that when he came to the moment to be catapulted to prominence, and this would forever change David's life, the trajectory of his life, what gave him the boldness and confidence to face it was his faithfulness in obscurity and in dealing with the small things. That's what Elisha's learned. And that's what he'd whisper in your ear as you're about to run around the track and he's serving as kind of a coach and encourager. And think about the courage that he had. He asked for something big. And it just made me, as I was thinking about this, ask myself a question. And I want to ask it to you. Have you stopped asking God for big things? God delights in coming alongside of us and making our lives more than we ever thought they would be. Making our marriages better than we thought they could be. Making our parenting have more of an impact, a generational impact, than we ever thought it could have. But when was the last time you really asked God for something big in your life? Or, or has just the, just the normal pace and 
tenor of life taken away, that edge in you spiritually. I want to tell you something. Your faithfulness with God over time, attending to the small things, operating in obscurity, doesn't mean that you don't get to have big faith. In fact, just the opposite. The God who shows up in those details, in that small thing, the one that just gives you the ability to get up the next morning and do it again, no matter what anybody else sees or observes, that's the God that when your season comes forward will stir up in you a boldness that you can't believe you even have. And you'll find yourself saying yes to things that you never thought in a million years you'd be able to say yes to. I love it when Jesus was talking to his disciples about this principle in John 14. Here's what he said. Whoever believes in me will do the works I've done. Oh, so Jesus, if we believe in you, if we follow you, we get to do the kind of things you've done. Jesus is like, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not done yet. And, they'll eat, and they'll, they will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to go to the Father And then he says, you may ask me for anything in my name. I'm going to do it. It's a bold statement by Jesus. Now, in another another time together, we'll talk about the provisos of this statement, you know, in alignment with the will of God and for the good purposes of God in your life and others. So God doesn't give you everything you want, but it is an encouragement to ask boldly of God. There's something about walking in our faith, if we're not careful, it'll take the edge off. It'll dull the knife. The story of Elisha is an encouragement to keep doing what's in front of you, but don't get dull. Keep that willingness. Let me ask you a question to kind of get to the heart of this. God answered all your prayers, all the stuff going on in your life right now. If he answered every one of them, would it simply make your life better or would it make the world better? If God answered every one of your prayers right now, said yes to everything you've asked him for, for the last 60 days, would it make your life better or make the world better? Making your life better is a good thing, but it's not good enough. God wants to use your life to impact this world. And it's in our prayers, it's in our, in our things spoken in secret. God sees those things. They're not missed by him. Let me give you very quickly four things to move towards this kind of excellence, this kind of vitality, spiritually speaking. Number one, I think that if you want to run like Elisha, you got to cultivate your awareness of the presence of God in your life. So God is present everywhere. Sometimes we sing songs about God show us, you know, come down, be with us. That's a metaphoric way of speaking. He's already here. But we often act as if it's not true. So we sing songs about God, show us your glory, show us yourself, make yourself known. It's just an invitation really for us to open our eyes. And there's a way you and I can cultivate our awareness of the presence of God in this world. In 2 Kings chapter 3, Elisha was dealing with a very serious moment in Israel's history. There was a drought There was a drought in the land of Moab and splintering over all the way into the land of Israel. And it was just an ugly situation. It had been several weeks and cattle were starting to die and people were starting to die. And somebody rises up and says, isn't there a man of God somewhere that can help us with this? Somebody says, hey, I know Elijah's gone, but there's Elisha. And uh, maybe, (laughs) maybe he can help us. 
So they go to Elisha, and he's like, uh, so you need water. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Bring me a harp. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. We need water. He's like, no, 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 no. Bring me a harp. So look at the passage. But now bring me a harpist. And while the harpist was playing, look at this. It was in that moment that the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. Now the harpist, that, that conjures up images of, of worship. It was an instrument. Looked very similar to what we have today, not quite as elaborate, but they'd bring it together. And Elisha says, hey, look, before I deal with this water thing, I just want to spend some time in worship with God. It's not a bad principle. I have found if you want to press into all that God has for you, there's a corollary desire to operate and move and be aware of the presence of God in your life. Here's the principle. I have found that the power of God often follows the presence of God. That's why coming together and lifting our voice together in song here is so important. Something happens that's not always easily measurable in this place by natural eyes when people worship God. Here's something that I know always happens. Hearts get softer. There's a willingness and an openness to the move of God in people's lives. I've observed this in couples. They're in church, they're worshiping together and they're kind of standing with that, you know, nicely identified personal space around them. A couple feet left room for the Holy Spirit to operate evidently and they're in worship. And then they start worshiping and they get, maybe not, maybe not lost in it, but they begin to focus not just on what their eyes can see, but they, their eyes get lifted up to an awesome God. It's not unusual to see a husband or a wife kind of take a step towards each other. You're like, oh, that's weird. It's like, yeah, no, 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 no. Something happens. Something happens in worship. Hearts get softer. A willingness to deal with relationship stuff. It happens. The presence of God actually makes room for the power of God to be at work. It really does. Miracles. I've seen miracles happen. We'll talk about that here in just a few weeks. The power of God at work. But I've seen miracles happen, and often they happen in and around worship. When I was in India with Pastor Will, and we were watching the great work of God there, one of the things that impressed us so deeply was their love of worship. And it made the poverty that they were around, it made it seem non-existent to me. In fact, I left thinking they got more stuff than I got. You know, they got something I don't have. Well, what was the difference? It was the power of God that shows up when God is worshipped. That's why the enemy would love to make you not be a worshiper. Everything outside of God's going to fail, by the way. And so you and I need to have the presence of God in our lives. And we need to be aware of it and partner with it. Number two, your God-given purpose is more important than your position. Your God-given purpose is more important than your position. This world looks at position and title. God looks at the purpose to which he's designed you and how faithful you are in that thing. Look at what happened in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The disciples are out doing the great works of God that Jesus said they could do. And people are like, whoa, what's going on here? This is different. And here's what they say amongst themselves. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were, look at these words, unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note, and watch this phrase, 
that these men had been with Jesus. You know the difference? Wasn't their title. They were unschooled, ordinary people, but they had been with Jesus. He made all the difference. And that Peter and John were able to go out and literally light the world on fire because they had been with God. They didn't have the title. They were fishermen, but they had been with Jesus and they were walking in their God-given purpose. Here's a principle for us. I think that passion flows from testimonies, not titles, and power comes from purpose, not position. And if you think God can't use you, you're wrong. Of course he can. In fact, he delights in it. And in fact, if you have title and position and prominence, God wants to leverage that for even greater impact, for you to enable others to discover their purpose and their power in God. God gives elevated position so that those who are influenced by your sphere of influence can experience an accelerated path. Influence and power and money can accelerate the work of God. It's powerful the way that happens. Number three. This one might feel a little controversial to you. I'm just going to say this is what I've learned. And I offer it for your consideration. When you're in a season and you don't know what your purpose is, and you don't have a, a specific vision, when God doesn't give you a vision of your own, I have found it's really helpful and really powerful to help other leaders fulfill theirs. When Jill and I moved to Cincinnati and we were just here because we wanted to raise our daughter closer to family, I took a job at a, at a high school that was a pretty cool place and had a friend who was the leader of that organization, and, but it wasn't where I wanted to be. But for that season of my life, I decided I was going to do the best I can. And I'd like to tell you I started there, but I didn't. About a year in, I felt like, well, there's a year of my life wasted, not doing what God's called me to do. And I'm praying about it, talking to a couple people, and I sit down with my mentor, and he says, I'm going to share with you what's been shared with me and has been shared with others. It's not original, but I think it's a word from the Lord for you. Okay. He said, why don't you grow where you're planted? Why don't you grow where you're planted? God put you there. God opened that door. Why don't you just be faithful there? And I heard him. It went in the head, but it didn't travel that very long distance from my head to my heart. You know, that 16 or so inches. That's a long way. So it was up here. And a few months into the second year at that place, I remember walking around and I was responsible to help start leading the chapel program and I was praying for God to show up and it came back to me in a big way. Grow where you're planted. I remember bowing my head, I'll never forget, saying, God, I, for whatever reason, you don't want me to pastor yet, okay? So I'll just pastor these kids. And I promise you, things begin to turn around. God gave me a favor with him and with people that I could not have cultivated on my own. That thing became a springboard ultimately for this place. I didn't have a vision of my own, but I decided in that season I would submit to the mission of that place and to the people who hired me, and I'd just do the best job that I could. And that's not a bad place. If you feel like you're in obscurity, find somewhere where God is working and give yourself to it. In 2 Kings 2, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. 
Here's the principle here. Good leadership comes from good followership. Elisha says, or Elijah says to Elisha, stay here. And Elisha's like, uh-uh, I've been following you the whole time. I'm going to keep following you. And he follows him from Gilgal all the way to the other place. It's a long journey. And wherever Elijah went, Elisha went. And he's just going to operate and continue to serve in faithfulness there. And that willingness to continue to follow Elijah is what put him in proximity to have the conversation where Elijah says, what do you want when I exit? That kind of followership. Number four then, what's done for God's glory. What's done for God's glory will outshine and outlast everything else. What's done for God's glory. Look at Matthew chapter five. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works so they glorify you. Uh Uh-uh. So they would glorify your father who is in heaven. Jesus speaking of himself to his heavenly father. I glorify you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. It's a principle that I'm learning over and over again. My glory, your glory is much too small a goal to give your life to. God has called you to some type of greatness. And the path between where you are and that great thing that he's called you to will probably take you through obscurity and smallness and require levels of faithfulness that seem to rack your soul. But don't you give up. Don't you give up. God has a way of taking people who have been faithful in small things and making them masters over great things. That's a biblical principle you and I will never get away from. And we learn it in the example of Elisha. We learn it in the example of Jesus. And it's exactly what you and I are called to do. Your glory is far too small a goal to give your life to. What has God called you to? Would you do this? Would you take out your connect card? And let's actually take a step or two in that direction. I've been talking about the fact that God has a path he wants you on, but it's possible today you're not even in a relationship with him. And if that's you, I want to give you a chance to take next step A that says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. Be willing to check that box that says, God, I acknowledge I'm a sinner and I I need a Savior. I can't save myself. I need you to do it. If you'll check that box and pray with me in a few minutes and Do serious business with God where you say, God, I accept the work that Jesus has done on his cross and in the resurrection. And I trust in that alone to secure my relationship to you. The Bible says if you'll do that, if you'll let him be the Lord of your life, he'll save you. He'll rescue you. We'd ask you then to take your connect card and check next step A and put it in the offering bucket when it passes by. And we'll communicate with you about that. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized choosing to be baptized. If you want to go public with your faith like dozens of folks this year have done around here already, we celebrate that as part of the family of God together. Check the box. We'll answer your questions, get you started. Next step C says, hey, would you guys pray with me as I work to bring greater excellence in a particular area of my life? This step is an invitation to find one place where you might be willing feeling like you're, you're walking in obscurity or you're ready to give up because it's too small or you haven't seen the change yet and you're wondering if it's worth it. It's in this very place I'd like you to listen to the encouragement of Elisha. God sees the small. He sees the faithfulness. And your heavenly Father will reward you. Don't give up. Your job is to bring your best self to those moments. 
you'll check the box. We'll pray about it. If you want to tell us about it, put it on your Connect card, we will. Or we'll just generally pray for you. Now, next step D refers to the thing I talked to you about earlier. It says, I'm interested in hosting a group this fall. It's a small group here at 4C. And please contact me with more information. So a member of our team will have a conversation with you. You might be surprised just how much of a difference you can make in somebody's life if you just open your home. Be willing to let us help you land on some resources and material, and all you do is facilitate some conversation. You'll be taking your step, and you'll be helping other people take their step. Next step E is about our church family here. It's our core rally. Our next one for this quarter is on August 27. It happens right here in this room, typically. But I got to tell you, this one has a little bit of a special surprise to it. So if you'll check the box and express your interest here, we'll send you some special information about this particular core rally. I don't think you'll want to miss it. And uh, you can be a part of a very special time we're going to have together, all right? So if you call this church home, it's for you. If you serve, it's for you. If you're our guest, you're welcome. And you can discover kind of what we do behind the curtains at this meeting, all right? Let's pray about these things right now. Father, I want to thank you that there are folks like... uh, like Elisha, who serve, as it were, a coach for us, a spiritual guide. And we can learn from their example, and you can teach us the lessons you taught them as we study their lives. God, I want to thank you that there isn't a single person in this room that you haven't called to greatness in one way or another. Oh, the world may not call it great, and our friends may not call it great, but you do. And I pray, God that you would give us a desire to please you above all others. And we'd have a tenacity, a grit, a stick-withedness that that confounds the world, that gives up so easily. We We wouldn't be fickle with our faith. We'd be faithful in small things. We'd give our best selves to the thing you've called us to right here where we are. And we know that you will see what we do and you'll reward it. Father, I want to thank you for Jesus who came and gave his life. He was crucified on a cruel tree. He was resurrected from death by your power. I want to thank you, Lord, that our trust in that secures our relationship with you. Nothing we can do, nothing we can earn. I join with those that are saying, Jesus, save me. Wash away my sins. Cover my life with your blood. I want to follow you. I want you to be the leader. Father, I pray for all the men and women in this room who are uh, being faithful, who are digging it out, who have been sticking with it. God, I pray that today's words would be an encouragement to their heart. And for those of us that are on the fence and we're kind of having an argument with ourselves, I pray, God, that today your voice would speak very loudly into that conversation. That it's worth it. Life with you is good. You see it all. You've not forgotten. And that you will elevate us in due time to that place you've called us to. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.